Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. You are listening to an encore presentation of Afternoons with Bill Arnold. Faith, hope, and clarity in a special repeat performance. Welcome to Afternoons with me. I'm Bill Arnold. It is the Sunburnt series continuing. Dr. Peter Kapsner and I are so glad that we're going to get a chance to talk to Dr. Doug Gruthaus today. Um, in an offbeat moment, I got him to commit to 100 appearances on my show. And after today, he'll only have 90 left. So it's be fun to, <laughs> fun to get that out of the way. Indeed. Yeah, Doug's a member of the Evangelical Theological Society, Evangelical Philosophical Society, and Society of Christian Philosophers. He's written a number of Christian books. On apologetics, he's also a professor of philosophy at Denver Seminary, and every time he's on, I always lose that night of sleep because I'm always <laughs> thinking about what he said. So, well, I, I'm pretty sure, Bill, that you could take my IQ and your IQ, double it, add fifty, and we still wouldn't be in shouting distance. Of Doug. <laughs> I'm, I'm 100% confident I'm of that. Pretty sure of that as well. He's uh, calling from the great state of Alaska. Doug, welcome. Thank you. It's good to be back. How are things in Alaska right now? Uh, things are going well been here for about six weeks, I guess, and uh, we have lots of daylight and quiet and I'm on some property on my wife's homestead, so doing a lot of reading, writing, some canoeing, and a little bit of hiking, so... <laughs> Sounds like the good life. <laughs> it does sound it, like the good life. Yes. Yeah. I, <laughs> you I, guys can be envious of me. I am envious. I, totally. Yes. Yeah. Peter cut his lawn today. He's thinking about golfing tomorrow. <laughs> that's so the extent of it. I saw a rabbit. I think you, know, that's, you yeah. did not. Oh, oh. May, at best. I okay. mean, but the wildlife he's seeing compared to that little <laughs> rabbit I saw. I mean, wow. So well, um, we don't we don't want to see bears out here. Yeah, or at least uh, not when you're outside without a car between you and the bear. You don't want to see one. <laughs> you know, I always hear that they say so. when you when you see a bear, don't run. <laughs> that's the only thing I would want to do is run. <laughs> But it's probably the dumb thing to do. You're supposed to sit there and, what, talk to it? <laughs> I think the first thing you do is pray. And uh, if you have a gun, you use it to, to, to scare them away. Yeah. yeah. So I'm excited to talk about defending the biblical view of Jesus. To me, it's uh, got to be one of the more important topics in, in today's uh, marketplace of ideas, as there's more and more people um, not defending it and there's more people attacking it and as believers we got to stand up and know what we're doing well absolutely and i look back at my teaching and writing career i first wrote a book about jesus back in 1990 was called revealing the new age jesus and that was to counter uh, what are called christologies or philosophies of jesus from uh, the mystical Eastern perspective or Gnostic perspective on things. And in fact, just yesterday I was in a used bookstore in Anchorage, Alaska, and I confess that uh, I do this. I think other authors do that. You go into these bookstores and you wonder if they have any of your books, and, <laughs> <laughs> which is actually not good because it means the original owners sold it, and you don't get royalties off of, of used books. But anyway, I saw 
um, a copy of my 1990 book, Revealing the New Age Jesus. And then that was revised in 96 to Jesus in an Age of Controversy. And then I wrote another book in the Wadsworth Philosopher Series called On Jesus. So as a follower of Jesus and as a philosopher and apologist, I've been very concerned to know who the real Jesus is biblically and to serve him rightly, and then to consider all the unbiblical ideas out there. So I started uh, my writing career really dealing with the New Age movement, and they have a particular take on Jesus, which is still around, and that is that Jesus was a a mystical guru or swami or yogi or something like that, and he taught that uh, we can all be one with God through looking within ourselves, and that he was the great example of looking within himself and discovering that he was one with God and one with the universe and so on. In fact, I just heard that perspective given in a documentary I saw recently. The, The man was saying that all the great religious teachers said to look within yourself to find truth. And I was watching TV with my wife, and I said, no! <laughs> I think I, I gave her an earache after that. But <clears throat> that's not what Jesus taught, because that's not who Jesus was. He's one of a kind. He's not one of many uh, sages, prophets, mystics, avatars, etc. He... Uh, stands out from everyone, um, given his claims and his credentials. So Jesus, uh, in several ways, uh, claimed to be God walking on earth. Uh, Like in John 8, he said in a discussion, uh, a heated theological discussion, he said, before Abraham was, I am, and they picked up stones to stone him because he was applying to himself the divine name that God revealed to Moses in the burning bush back in Exodus 3, verse 14. So here's a man who says, before Abraham was, I am. And it doesn't just mean I existed before Abraham existed. It means he was God, and he is God. So that's a powerful claim. And Jesus was not a pantheist. A pantheist is someone who thinks that everything is divine, and salvation is found by looking within which is really the the new age or the new spirituality view of things. And the biblical teaching is that we're made in the image and likeness of God, so we're unique in the universe, and we have value on that basis. But we're flawed. Uh, We're terribly flawed. In fact, we are utterly disabled from saving ourselves. So this is why Jesus came, sent by the Father, to come and live a righteous life, and to teach and preach and heal and raise the dead and to die on a horrible bloody cross to atone for our sins and rise again from the dead, ascend to the right hand of the Father, which is where he is right now. He has all supremacy in heaven and on earth. So that's the Jesus I believe in. That's the Jesus that I worship, and that's the Jesus who I have defended all these years. Dr. Doug Gruthaus is our guest. Doug, when I hear about the New Age Jesus, I when I talk to people that follow New Age, it seems that that, their, that Jesus is never allowed to contradict their will. That's it, yeah. Not, he really isn't. So he's not an authority outside of oneself. 
I think of what Jesus said. I think it's in Luke. I'm sorry, I don't have the reference. He says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? So you might say Jesus is my master, my Lord, but the first word of a gospel in Matthew 4 is repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. The king is here in Jesus. And so in light of that reality, in light of his glory, we should repent. And the New Testament word for repent is metanoia, and it means a radical change of mind. It means thinking in a new way, living in a new way, turning from self and selfishness to God and his kingdom and his salvation. So if Jesus only exists to ratify your previous convictions, then that's not the real Jesus because we're flawed. We're sinners and we need to be redirected. You know, we need a, as Francis Schaeffer said, we need a an infinite integration point for our lives. We need a reference point uh, to know what is right and what is wrong, and then to have the strength uh, to do what is right, having been forgiven through the work of Jesus. But there are so many references in in the New Testament to counterfeit gospels and counterfeit Christs and counterfeit miracles. And when I was coming up, uh, in the countercult world, I, I learned so much from Walter Martin, as many of us have, and I I learned all these scriptures we have about, uh, be, you know, don't be deceived by any hollow and deceptive philosophy that's not based on Christ. Uh, Colossians two eight or test the spirits to see whether or not they are from God. First John four four and the prophets in the Old Testament are warning about false prophets and corrupt leaders and so on. So if you're really making your cause with Jesus, so to speak, if you're following him as Lord, you take a stand where he takes a stand, so to speak, and you defend who he was and what he did and try to make his gospel of forgiveness and new life known to the world. And there are a lot of false ideas about Jesus out there, many false gospels. So... Uh, we should know what the real one is and defend it and speak it to as many people as we possibly can. That is absolutely dead on, Doug. I love what you've said so far. Let's take a little break. Dr. Doug Gruthaus is our guest for our Sunburnt series. As we continue, we're studying uh, today on defending the biblical view of Jesus. We'll be right back. <clears throat> listening to an encore presentation of Afternoons with Bill Arnold. Faith, hope, and clarity in a special repeat performance. have to wait for the horns. 
I can, I can never <laughs> I can never start until the horns come in. No, you can't because it would wreck the entire intro at that point if you cut that it's off It's a lot early. of build-up It is, horns. but it's worth it for the horns. I agree. 100% worth it. I agree. Yeah. Dr. Peter Kapsner and I are hosting Dr. Doug Gruthaus today. Uh, he's a member of the Evangelical Theological Society. He's also a professor of philosophy at Denver Seminary, author of many books. And today we're talking about defending the biblical view of Jesus. Peter, you have a great question for Doug. Yeah, Doug, I'm curious. You're talking about making sure that we recapture and, and uh, have a clear-eyed view of a biblical Jesus. But this Jesus lived 2,000 years ago and, and did the work 2,000 years ago. So there's a lot of different versions of this Jesus that have made their way forward in these 2,000 years. What What kind of work do you do? to try to get that clear-eyed vision and version of Jesus uh, that is worth following at the uh, end of the day. Right. And that's an important apologetic question about the whole Bible. We can um, talk about it with respect to Jesus. Is Jesus was written a long time ago, and perhaps various errors have gotten into the text, or people might say, well, who could even figure out what the Bible says about Jesus? So, where I would start would be with the historical reliability of the New Testament, and I'd look at things like how it's been transmitted through manuscripts accurately. Uh, there are about 6,000 complete or partial Greek manuscripts of the New Testament to draw from, and if you just compare some of the major translations, uh, like uh, the New International Version or the English Standard Version, or go back even to the King James Version, you'll find almost no differences, uh, very slight differences. So when you compare that also with other works of ancient literature, it's far better attested with the manuscript. So that's called the uh, the manuscript test. And then you say, who wrote these manuscripts? Because it could be we have accurately preserved fictions. I mean, that's a possibility. But we rule that out because there's good evidence that the New Testament was written by the disciples of Jesus or those who uh, interacted with the disciples of Jesus, like with the four Gospels. Matthew was a disciple of Jesus. Mark was a companion of Peter. Uh, Luke was a companion of Paul. And John, of course, was the beloved disciple of Jesus. And then uh, the other books are somehow organically related to an apostle. So one way to sum this up is to say the New Testament was written by eyewitnesses, or those who carefully consulted eyewitnesses. And when you put the four Gospels together, and you add the Book of Acts, and you add the letters and Revelation, and of course include the Hebrew Bible, or the First Testament, the Old Testament, you come up with a coherent view of who Jesus was. So it's legitimate for people to say, all right, well, there's a view of Jesus, and you view him as Lord, and you believe he saved you, but um, right now I don't. So why do you believe the New Testament? And we don't have to say, well, I have faith. Just have faith. We do. Uh, we need to have saving faith. Uh, Christ has atoned for our sins, and we receive that by faith alone, Ephesians 2, 8, Titus 3, 5, and 6, I mean, the whole Bible. So uh, we can move in that direction. We can say, Manuscripts are trustworthy, the original authors are trustworthy, and we have a coherent picture of Jesus as uh, the sacrifice for our sin, the God-man, the one who uh, lived and died and rose from the dead. And then if we talk about Christology, who was Jesus, uh, we can be helped by the historic creeds and confessions of the Church. 
the orthodox formulations of what Christianity is all about, like the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, or if you want to get more detailed with a Protestant confession, you could look at something like the Westminster Confession of Faith, which is very significant to anyone in the in the Presbyterian tradition. Or uh, I'm an Anglican, so the 39 Articles of Faith are, I think are are very clear on the basic meaning of Christianity and the person of Christ. And so looking back at the history of that then, too, Doug, in terms of the events of his life, it it seems like that Jesus' death has been verified by sources outside of the Gospel writers. But how important is it that the resurrection did happen? I mean, obviously it's the critical crux of our faith. Paul says that our faith is in vain if it didn't happen. But this has to be a historical event. It can't just be a metaphor that teaches us something about life and death. The, The importance of that actually happening is really the fulcrum of our faith. Well, it is, and Paul was really clear on that in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, if you put your faith in Christ and he didn't rise from the dead, your faith is in vain, you're deceiving people, when you're dead, you're dead, uh, your loved ones have perished. So he hangs everything on that, but he's confident that it occurred. In fact, in the early parts of 1 Corinthians 15, he speaks of the various witnesses to the resurrection. Uh, he said Christ appeared to 500 people at one time many of whom are still living. Now, that's a pretty radical claim to make, because he's not afraid of uh, people refuting that. He's basically saying there's some some people around who who are still living who saw the risen Christ. So there's great confidence uh, that Christ rose from the dead. It's central to the four Gospels. It's central to all of the Scripture. And if you deny it, you have to explain a lot of things that you can't explain. Like, for one thing, why Christianity even exists, because the documents that tell us about the resurrection are close in time to that purported event, and we have multiple witnesses. We have the four Gospels, we have Paul, and so on. And uh, I'm summarizing a lot here, but the alternative idea is that it was a hallucination or it was a fabrication just don't fit the historical facts that we have So it's not only theologically crucial, necessary, but it's historical. It's not just an idea, and the history can be verified. So in in my book, Christian Apologetics, I have a chapter on the resurrection of Jesus, and I just finished a second edition of that book, and that chapter became two chapters. So I have one chapter on miracles in general, and then another chapter on the resurrection of Jesus as the greatest miracle in particular. So you could read an inspiring story about someone who has trials and travails and they overcome them, and they might call that a resurrection. Or you could read an inspiring story from another religion. But you might say those inspiring stories are made real in the person of Jesus. C.S. Lewis developed that idea wonderfully particularly in his essay called Myth Become Fact in God and the Dog. Because Lewis, before he was a Christian, was very influenced by the world's myths and legends and religions. And he saw these themes of a dying and rising God and a paradise and so on. And through his conversations with uh, Tolkien and others, he realized that this, in fact, has happened in the person of Jesus. And once he started to see the New Testament was reliable, uh, in fact, he got his first uh, 
cold water in the face on that from an atheist professor at Oxford. Uh, because Lewis just thought the New Testament was mythological, like these other Norse legends and things he was reading. And this, and this uh, classicist, I guess, professor said, well, you know, as evidence goes, it's pretty pretty reliable. And that shocked him. And then his conversations with Tolkien, uh, Tolkien said, you know, it's not an either-or. It's not myth or fact. It can be myth in the sense of fulfilling our deepest yearnings and longings and desires and also have happened in space-time history. Hmm. So it's just beautiful. Hmm. And um, such good arguments for the resurrection of Jesus on multiple levels. Doug, I don't have a lot of time for broad, sweeping generalizations, but I have time for one right now. Um, and that is, <laughs> <laughs> And that is, the world seems like never before are rejecting the Bible. Hmm. What are your thoughts on that? Depends on what part of the world, because... If we look at the two-thirds world, Christianity, or what's called the Global South, Christianity is growing tremendously in parts of Africa and South America and so on. But if you look at uh, Western culture, it's not the same story. Now, we have a tremendous apologetics movement at really high levels and more popular levels, and that's that's terrific. But certainly there is a lot of disdain for Scripture and today, a lot of it comes out of what the Bible teaches about sexual ethics and sexual identity. So um, I've added some material in the second edition, which is not out yet, of Christian apologetics on the LGBTQ concerns, because someone might say, well, I don't care what you say about Christianity. If you're a Christian, you don't endorse same-sex marriage, so I'm not going to be a Christian. All right, well, there's quite a bit of discussion we need to have on that. Like, who are we as human beings? Does the Bible speak authoritatively? What did Jesus think about sexual identity and sexual ethics? And if, in fact, he was God incarnate and died for our sins and rose from the dead, he's in the best position to know what the truth is. So it's kind of a yes and no answer. I think in a lot of parts of the West, there's much unbelief, a lot of it generated by so-called progressive sexual ethics, but in other parts of the world, Christianity is, is growing tremendously. Philip Jenkins has documented that in uh, a book called The Next Christendom, which I think is out in the third edition hmm. right now. And then I'm also heartened that uh, the apologetics world is is just rich with excellent material out there uh, for every aspect of defending Christianity. I agree. Dr. Doug Grudhaus. just need to get the word out. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Dr. Doug Grudhaus is our guest. If you have a question or comment, we'd, I bet we'd have time to take it. 877-933-2484. We're talking about defending the biblical view of Jesus. And when we come back, we're going to continue that discussion with Doug Grudhaus. Dr. Peter Kapsner and I are so glad to be doing our Sunburnt series on Wednesdays uh, throughout the summer. We've got a big announcement coming up for what we're going to be doing uh, starting in September 1. Our fall series is... Uh, has been decided upon and we've already booked our first guest and, and boy it's gonna be great anyway we'll be right back in just a couple minutes with doug you are listening
listening to an encore presentation of Afternoons with Bill Arnold. Faith, hope, and clarity in a special repeat performance. jumped in your car we are continuing our sunburnt series which is a bunch of uh topics that we cover throughout the summer dr peter capster and i are so glad to have dr doug gruthaus on the program doug has authored a number of books if you can go to douglasgruthaus.com i'll spell his last name for you it's g-r-o-o-t-h-u-i-s douglasgruthaus.com you can learn all about doug uh, but today we're talking about defending the biblical view of Jesus. And uh, Peter, I think you had a question. Yeah, Doug, you, before the break, you were talking a little bit about uh, the sexual, sexual ethic conversation that's going on in our country right now and different globally. And I wonder if you can just comment about that from the biblical standpoint, since you're sort of defending the Bible. And, and just a quick background on that. I know that uh, in having to do some debate with somebody about what the Bible was saying about the sexual ethic uh, I watched his argument crumble that the Bible actually supports LGBTQ uh, relationships. But I think the question that so many people has is, is why? Why the, why the male and female together it, it constitutes biblical sexuality? Why are these other ones out of bounds? Do you have any kind of answer to sort of the why of the male and the female being together? Well, I do, because the biblical account is that God created them, male and female, Genesis 1. And he endorsed only one pattern of of sexual intimacy, and that is marriage. So if we are really created beings, and if we are designed with a purpose, or to be fancy, a a telos, uh, then our nature fits what we ought to do, and vice versa. But see, the problem now today is uh, what's called anti-essentialism. It's the idea that, at least with respect to gender, it's all up in the air. It's all up for grabs. So there's no givenness. Even biology is denied or contradicted with the trans movement. So I think what it ultimately goes back to is, are we beings created by God or not? And if we are, then we have a normative nature. That is, there are things we ought to do, given who we are. There are things we ought not to do, given who we are. But what we've seen in uh, Western philosophy and culture is this idea of expressive individualism, that I'm not accountable to any sacred order. There's no commandment above me that says you should and you should not. The issue is mere consensus and social convention. So if that's all there is, then any sexual arrangement uh, that is legal and which is supposedly consensual is fine. And after all, it's my body, isn't it? Well, biblically, no, it isn't. Uh, You didn't create your body. You didn't give yourself your gender. But the, the ultimate issue, I think, comes down to Are we created beings? Are we part of a a sacred story? Is there a sacred order? And ought we conform to patterns of behavior that we may not initially like, uh, that may cut against our desires? And that's the biblical message. In fact, Jesus said, 
if anyone would be my disciple, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. So the pathway to abundant life is self-denial and the embrace of the kingdom of God. And that is very counter to the philosophy of self and expressive uh, individualism, as uh, some have called it. I think that's what it really comes down to. And uh, the great apologist and, and prophet Francis Schaeffer said it back in 1968 in his book, The God Who Is There. He said, a lot of homosexuality today is philosophical homosexuality. And he said, it's the denial of the created categories of male and female and taking those things into our own hands to decide how we want to express ourselves sexually. He said that in 68. And we see it everywhere now, far more extensively than he could even have imagined, like with the trans movement and with same-sex marriage and the push for what's called polyamory, which is why limit marriage to male-female, female-female, male-male, why not include three, four, whatever, whoever you want? Who are you to say marriage has to be one particular way? And what I want to say is, uh, who are you to say it shouldn't be? And who has the final say? <laughs> and the final say is our creator and our redeemer. And we have reason to trust what the scripture says about these things. And there are also wonderful stories of people who have come to Jesus, like uh, Rosaria Butterfield, who was a, uh, a very active lesbian, secular professor. And she became a Christian and... God not only saved her soul, not only redeemed her through the blood of Jesus, but also changed orientation. Such so she went from being a lesbian to being heterosexual. She wrote a book about this called, um, I think it's called Thoughts from a Most Unlikely Convert. Now, not everyone will have a change of orientation, but you should have a change of moral knowledge and moral awareness. And I know of two young Christian men uh, who are, are gay, but they know what Scripture teaches on it. So they, they realize they'll have to deny themselves in this area. And that kind of self-denial is different than what a heterosexual would have. But they're willing to do that, to follow their Lord. And it's doable. In fact, I uh, wrote an article recently in Philosophy Now, which is a secular philosophy magazine out of the U.K., because someone said Christianity is unfair, because it says that if you're gay, you can't act out on it if you're a Christian. So it took me about one nanosecond to realize I had to write a response to that, and I did, and they published it amazingly. And uh, what I said is essentially is what I what I just said here, uh, that if we have a created nature, we should follow that, and there's divine assistance to help us deny ourselves in whatever area that denial needs to happen. So this is a huge issue in apologetics and ethics, in social policy and preaching and teaching. It's really one of the, the major issues today I think we need to get clear on. And it's not easy to get all the categories just right. For example, I'm kind of going on at length here, but one time, sometimes I hear people say, well, you know, homosexuality is a sin. Wait a minute, calm down. Uh, you don't want to say that because what if someone has same-sex attraction and they follow Jesus and they deny themselves 
and they take up their cross and follow him in that area. You want to say, well, they're, you have to say, well, they're just uh, to be rejected as sinners because they have that orientation. The biblical emphasis is on actions. It's on behavior. And I think we need to be careful how we put things um, and how we approach this issue. Doug Grithaus is our guest. <clears throat> Doug, when it comes to defending the biblical view of Jesus, when it comes to things like topics of sexuality, there are a lot of people that have already come to their own conclusions, and they're not going to do much dialoguing with you. They're going to mm-hmm. scream their conclusion at you, and that's it. Yes, and there we have to go to Jesus about there's a time to not argue, and he used some pretty strong language about that, about casting your pearls before swine. Uh, so it's not always a time to give an argument, especially if someone is not listening to you. And then we have to be self-controlled to, to not respond in kind. Uh, scripture says that a wise man holds his peace, but a fool proclaims his folly. So there's a time to simply give up and wait or maybe come back to the issue later. But uh, I've, I've never seen anyone convinced of anything in a shouting match. I mean, maybe it's happened, but I think it's pretty rare that that happens. Doug, when you go backwards in Scripture like this and try to get a sense of what Jesus was teaching about things like sexual ethics or any number of things about life and its kingdom, can you think of some examples as you've done this study where you thought, gosh, I thought one way about Jesus or I thought this way about Jesus, but I actually changed my mind as a result of the evidence and just having the humility to do that. Have you done that kind of work? Well, I... I continue to be challenged by what Jesus says because it's so radical about loving your enemies and praying for those who persecute you. Um, there's always the issue of uh, the end times and eschatology and how we should understand what Jesus said about his coming again. And my views have changed a bit on that over the years, although I certainly have always believed as a Christian that he will come again from heaven in the same manner in which he left, Acts 1. Uh, and he promised that he would, and he would come uh, in judgment physically and, and visibly to end the age. Uh, my views on some issues, what's called eschatology, you know, premillennial, postmillennial, amillennial, pre-trib, post-trib, those have changed a little bit. But my uh, certainty that he will come again has certainly not changed at all. Mm. Uh, I, my views on uh, on Jesus and the role of women have changed a bit over the years. I've come to more appreciate how uh, how much he endorsed women and uh, how he taught women and the significance of women being the first witnesses at the uh, of the resurrection, uh, and that's included in the Gospels when women's testimony was not very highly rated at that time. Uh, and, you know, Jesus set things up that women would be the, the first witnesses of his resurrection, go tell the men, things like that. So I've become more, I think, sensitive and alert to how Jesus valued women over the years. Doug, we're going to take a little break. If you uh, have a question for Doug or maybe a comment you'd like to make, Peter and I would love to hear it. All you have to do is send me a text to 877-933-2484. Again, 877-933-2484. Our guest uh, is Dr. Doug Gruthaus. 
is a professor of philosophy at Denver Seminary, author of many books. You can go to Douglas Groothaus, G-R-O-O-T-H-U-I-S dot com. Learn more about Doug. We'll just uh, take a short break. Be right back. listening to an encore presentation of Afternoons with Bill Arnold, Faith, Hope, and Clarity, in a special repeat performance. I'm back with Dr. Doug Grudhouse, and he is coming to us from the great state of Alaska. Is that the 49th or the 50th state? How dare you not know that? <laughs> <laughs> I knew I was going to pay a price for that. Yeah, pretty nice. Hawaii was the 50th. Okay, what a relief. Um, 1959. Yeah. Became the 49th state. Yeah. Yeah, so we're um, talking about def- defending the biblical view of Jesus. We've been doing that all day with him, and it's been a great uh, study. And we, Peter and I both heard you say something which intrigued all of us here in the studio about how you had adjusted some of your thinking. And I've always said I'm a perpetual student the rest of my life and always will be. I come into this studio every day to learn, which I do. And I love a man of your intellectual capability and capacity finding adjustments in how you think and still making discoveries that's shaping your thinking. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm intellectually curious, and I do a lot of apologetics, so... Whenever somebody comes up with a, a charge against Christianity, I try to respond to it and learn. In fact, last summer I did a lot of work on uh, the atonement of Jesus because I expanded that for the second edition of my Christian apologetics book. And I went back and read a heretic in the 16th century named Socinus. And this guy was very smart. I mean, he was a worthy adversary. So, I responded to some of his attacks on the atonement. Some of them were not that difficult, but some of them were a little more difficult. And I had to study very hard. So I read um, Bill Craig's new book on that, uh, Atonement and the Death of Jesus. And I went back and read some classic things like Francis Turton and Charles Hodge and all kinds of things. And it uh, it was an adventure. You know, I had confidence coming through it that I could find the answers that I needed, and I did, uh, but it was a workout. I told my wife that I don't think I've ever studied anything harder, uh, more diligently uh, for quite some time, but um, I'm happy with where I came out, and there'll be two new chapters uh, in the next edition of the book, which will come out in March of next year on the atonement, one on stating it properly and one on defending it against attacks. So I find the Christian message to be not only spiritually motivating and inspiring, but but intellectually satisfying and challenging at the same time. 
Doug, I think it's uh, safe to say that to make the statement the Bible is authoritative, I believe that down to my toes, that it's inspired, it's authoritative, it, it is uh, what we believe it to be in terms of being God-breathed, but sometimes an interpretation of the Scriptures may not be authoritative. And so how do you, how do you help people that may be anchored in a certain interpretation of Scripture to at least open up the box and ask some questions while mm-hmm. retaining the confidence that Jesus really is real, we don't have anything to be afraid of, and that at the end of the day we're going to find truth if we do that work? Right. We need to have a good uh, philosophy of interpretation, and uh, I deal with that a little bit in um, uh, the next edition of Christian Apologetics. That was one of the the missing points, because if you're going to defend the biblical view of Jesus or the Bible as a whole, you need to have a solid way of approaching the texts. And sometimes people will attack Christianity on the basis of what it doesn't actually say. Uh, so, so for example, the New York Times a couple of years ago, one of the writers uh, made a reference to something Paul said about women, and he just took it way out of context, didn't consider the rest of Scripture at all, and pretty much just made fun of it and said, this is why we have to interpret every religious text metaphorically. So I respond to that, too. <laughs> but the, bas- the basic principles would be, you you try to consider what the author had in mind. You always consider the context of the argument. You look at the kind of literature it is. Is it a letter? Is it wisdom literature? Is it a gospel? And so on. And then uh, there's much more to it than that, but then you can go back and look at commentaries uh, in good study Bibles like the NIV study Bible, uh, the Reformation study Bible, or go back and read maybe commentaries by Matthew Henry or John Calvin or people like that. So you make a good distinction between the objective truth and authority of the Bible in itself, and then how do we derive what it in fact says. So it's not that unlike the way we should interpret the U.S. Constitution. Now, the Constitution is not not God-breathed by no means, but if we view it as inspired, then, or as authoritative, rather, then we should try to figure out what it actually says. And, uh, of course, that's a conservative view of the Constitution. It's called originalism. But whatever you think of that, Christians should certainly be originalists when it comes to the Bible. Because I want to know what the Apostle Paul had in mind, and what Jesus had in mind, and what Peter had in mind. And I don't want to take some of their words and just twist them to mean what I want them to mean. In fact, Peter himself in 2 Peter 3.16 warned about people who do that with the writings of Paul. He says they twist them to their own destruction. So that's serious. You really don't want to get the Bible wrong. Doug, I think the uh, more I study, the more I know, the less I feel like I know. And, of course, that's always painful when you host a radio show to reveal that uh, publicly. Um, but the well, we whole... have a new host in mind since. <laughs> yeah, this, you'll be signing off for the last uh, time today, right? That's Bill? Done. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I don't think I, I don't think I'm alone on this one. No, I, I, and if I can just jump in on that quickly, we were talking during the break that I was recently studying the very famous passage that whatever you do to the least of these, trying to get my head around who the least of these are. 
Come to find out that there's a long history of interpretation that the least of these more likely refers to the disciples who have given up everything to follow Jesus and will find themselves in prison without clothes, without food, mm-hmm. uh, all of that. I, whether or not that interpretation holds up, I don't yet know. But the fact that that has been the long history of interpretation just made my head explode mm-hmm. in those moments. So I just thought, gosh, I've never yeah, heard of that. Yeah, how disruptive is this? And you just do a quick study of it. You don't. Even, you can just Google it within all of the resources mm-hmm. Doug was talking about. It's exactly what you'll find. It's actually the less common view that it just refers to everybody mm-hmm. in general. Interesting. Well, I'll have to go check that out. Certainly. Well, we'll wait while you but go again, check it out. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and you're hosting the show like tomorrow an anyway. So yeah. <laughs> yeah, you're hosting tomorrow, so it doesn't matter. <laughs> But I, well, I, that's happened to me, you know, many times over the years. I've I've read a text a hundred times, and and then I, I get a new insight into it or a challenge to my viewpoint that I originally had. And um, I can't say, well, my viewpoint is infallible. No, the Bible's infallible. So right. if my interpretation has been off, or maybe is not as as credible as I thought it was, then I simply need to recognize that. I think I feel like there's things I, I want to feel locked and loaded on. And yeah. let me just say, I've got this one figured out. <laughs> right. So you push right. me on it, and I'm not going to like it. That's, yeah, And I think that happens, mm-hmm. it happens regularly on this show, because we will, we will talk about things that will upset uh, someone's idea or tradition or what they thought mm-hmm. to be true, and all of a sudden, you know, it's uh, disturbing, which is not a bad thing. Yeah, how do you handle that in class, Doug, when that comes up? Because I'm sure that it does with your students. Oh, I just tell them the professor's right and the students are wrong. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I have learned so much from my students over the years. And and uh, sometimes I'll just stop and say, I never thought about that before. And uh, I need to work on that. So I learn from them and they learn from me. And it's a marvelous uh, dialogue or discussion to be a part of when people are, are civil and they're really pursuing truth in a Christian setting. It's, it's really heartening to do that. And I've learned a lot of things uh, from my students over the years. And I, I try to, I ask the Lord to make me humble and teachable and not just think, well, I'm the professor, I know everything. I don't. I, I'm there to try to steward people into the truth of God. And if I've gotten something wrong, and, and sometimes students are pretty you know, pretty direct and say, you know, you said this, but that's that's not quite right. Or sometimes I'll try to be very uh, voluminous in my scripture citations and references, and one of the students will say, uh, no, Professor, that was second Thessalonians, <laughs> you know, so, uh, or whatever it may be. So really, humility is the first requirement of knowledge. Doug, is is it a helpful statement or a not helpful statement? Would you say it is to say, you know, when I go to sleep at night, I rest easy because I'm in relationship with the one who is the truth, and I'm going to get up the next day and pursue the truth as an act of worship because I'm in relationship with the one who is the truth. Yeah, that's that's terrific. I'll steal that. <laughs> yeah, I wrote that. And he yeah, read but it. I, he just texted, yeah, Bill just texted that over to me. Yeah. So yeah, you I'm gave salvaging me some, my job here. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. No, that's. That's what the way I try to approach it, right? Peter, that's worth repeating. If I'd like to hear that one more time, yeah, if you just, remember it. Well, I, I'll try. Yeah, the idea that when I when I go to sleep at night, my anxiety is relieved because I'm in a relationship with the one who is the truth, and therefore I'll get up the next day as somebody who will, will pursue the truth as an act of worship because I'm in a relationship with the one who is yeah. the truth. Yeah, yeah, that's terrific. I like that a lot. Yeah, I learned something. I learned something here. 
that's a beautiful way of putting, I think, what I've, what I've tried to do all these years. Mm. And may we all do that. Indeed. Yeah. It's, Indeed. Great that, it's great that we fellowship together. We learn from each other. We, sh- we, you know, we share ideas and hopefully build each other up in God's Word. Well, and I think that humility that Doug is referencing is so important, right? The idea that oh, we that absolutely ever? believe in truth. It is not relative. There is a being at the center <laughs> of this universe. But, but the idea that we walk in humility towards that, I think, is one of the great witnesses of our faith. Right, and Scripture says God opposes the proud but exalts the humble. But uh, humility doesn't mean saying we don't know anything or we don't take a stand for anything. It simply means we're grateful Mm -hmm. to God for everything, including the knowledge we have of Him. We're Mm -hmm. grateful for that. Doug, thanks again for doing the show. When does it get dark in Hawaii, in uh, Alaska? <laughs> <laughs> the 49th state. Yeah, the 49th state. <laughs> what time is it going to get dark there? It'll. The sun will set about 10:45 tonight. Amazing. Oh, nice. That's a. Yeah. That's awesome. Well, thanks again for yeah. doing the show. Always great to talk to you. Uh, okay. Just love having you on. Yeah, indeed. I enjoy it. Thanks much. Thanks for that, Doctor Doug Gruthaus has been our guest on the Sunburnt series. You can go to douglasgruthaus.com to learn more about Doug. Peter, I learned a lot today. Yeah, um, I did too. I don't know how. To, I don't know how you roped him in for ninety more episodes, but there's a lot ahead. I, I got him on an off. Like, I got him on an off. Moment. You, you must. Have, yeah. yeah, but as you are wont to do. Yeah, and uh, boy, but what what an amazing guest to be able to have on to walk through this and just. Uh, and there's a lot that I learned in his in his 55 minutes that he was yeah, talking about this too. for sure. I hope you have a great night. Enjoy time with your family. Have a nice dinner. Go for a walk. Spend time with the Lord. Put your head on the pillow and know that God loves you and has a amazing plan for your life. We'll see you tomorrow. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.